So Emily has been a teacher, uh, my wife Emily has been a teacher now for about nine years or so, and I, I was recalling back in the early stages of her in this role, and, and like many when we're getting started out, there's, there's some discouragement that can be there. And so uh, me being the boyfriend and then the fiance and then the husband who wants to make all things right would, would always give encouragement. No, 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 you're a great teacher. And she would respond to this with, well, you've never seen me be a teacher before. And I would go to, well, I know what you're like, I know the parts that would translate well to being a teacher, but in a sense, she was correct. I'd never seen her be a teacher before. Well, like all stories over the past two years, everything changed with COVID. And uh, we began working from home. I try to keep my normal work schedule, and she was teaching a half day over Zoom with her entire class at once. And I quickly realized that there is no place in the house to escape the sounds of an elementary classroom. (laughs) Everywhere I seemed to go, I could always hear the kids and their teacher. Everywhere. It it culminated with this week where I was uh, working on a sermon from the comforts of our closet, uh, blasting lyricless jazz music as loud as I could possibly stand it, and yet the voices prevailed. So eventually, I just gave in. I just uh, would, would uh, turn it into a little game. I would regurgitate facts that I would hear from the day. Uh, did you know that baby owls are called owlets? Uh, these are some of the things I learned in first grade. Well, I mean, me as an adult, retaking first grade. And there was something over this time that, that I learned. I got to see Emily as a teacher. I got to see her as she would, uh, she would gently try to help the, the, the kids who wanted to have their online class from their beds. I, I would hear her course correct those who were trying to get Alexa to help them spell words correctly <laughs> during a spelling test. I would hear her as she would uh, come alongside and, and try to redirect those who just wanted to spend the entire Zoom class sharing every object that they had in their classroom with the, or in their rooms with the rest of the class. I would hear her pivot as she would go to different teaching methods when other ones weren't really translating well for online or weren't working in that moment. I, I would get to see her do all of this while caring for and loving for these kids. And so I learned something. Well, first, that baby owls are called owlets. But second, I got to learn that what I was saying, what I was assuming for years was true. Emily is a good teacher. But this wasn't just assumptions or uh, coming to logical conclusions. I got to experience it. We talk all the time about how God uh, knows us. He knows everything about us, and he loves us. But we might have questions about how does God fully know us if he's so different than us? And he's missing that experience piece that can add so much more. Now, God is perfect, and so his love is always perfect for us. But we might ask questions, can he really know what we're like being so different? He might know what we're going through, but does he really know what that experience is like? I mean, yes, in the same way that I knew Emily was a good teacher before experiencing that. But God goes further than that. He comes to this earth as a human so that he can experience all, everything that we go through, every part of our life, every hurt and pain and hardship God experiences as a human so that he can know and love and care for us more. 
God comes to this place that is at times so beautiful, but could also be so full of pain. This world that is full of friendship, but also loneliness. This world that is full of joys and heartaches. This world that can be so good and so awful at times. God comes to that place as a person to experience all of it so that we can know him. So that through Jesus, he can offer us this great salvation. We've been hearing about this Jesus throughout the book of Hebrews. Each page has, has uh, some reminder about how Jesus is greater than anything else we might try and fill our lives with. And to this point, we've seen that uh, Jesus is the greater message. And long ago, in, in many times, in many ways, God spoke in a, in a variety of means. But now, this God who wants to be known, this God who wants to know his people, has spoken most clearly through Jesus. And then last week, we spent uh, the Sunday looking about how Jesus is greater than the angels because he is called the Son. Hang on to that Son language. We're going to need it later. But he's called the Son. He is uh, worshipped by angels, and he rules over them. So we're following along with what we've seen so far in Hebrews? Great. Why, though? Why did we have that whole section on angels? We're having this great conversation about how God spoke most clearly now through Jesus. Why do we need to spend this time on angels and how Jesus is greater than them when we probably could have come to that conclusion on our own, right? Well, this is where we keep reading. Let me read for us uh, Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. So Hebrews 2, Therefore, so because Jesus is greater than angels, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And what is it that we've heard? How God has revealed himself through Jesus. We have heard the gospel, the good news of how God has come. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Okay, let me pause there. So what is this message that's declared by angels? Well, if we look at different parts of the Old Testament, I, I think of Deuteronomy 33. It's this poem about how God gave instruction from Mount Sinai, the place that he gave the Ten Commandments, which is a, a kind of a summary of how, where God gave the Old Testament law. And he, in Deuteronomy 33, it says, He declared these things from Mount Sinai with His holy ones, His angels in His hand. Galatians 3, Paul says something similar to this. He says that the law was put in place by angels. So the idea is that the angels are there to give to us the Old Testament law, what is given to us in how God has revealed himself before, and this uh, instruction of who God is, what he's like, how what he's teaching us is good for us, how we are to be, how we are to live in light of him, that is given, it's passed down through angels. Okay, so if the message, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience, wherever people went away from the Old Testament law, received a just retribution. Now we get a, a lesser to greater argument. So since we have this new instruction and since this is what it was like before, how much greater, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All right, we tracking with that? So God spoke before in the Old Testament uh, and he gave the law, how all people are to live. And those who did not follow that, those who chose to uh, have their own law, those who chose to disobey God, well, there was a just retribution. There was a just punishment for doing that. In the same way that in our society, there are laws in place. If we do not follow those, there is a just punishment for doing that. If that was the case for this message that was passed down by angels, and if Jesus is greater than angels, which we spent all of last week talking about how he is, how much greater should we listen to this new teaching? this great salvation that's offered, lest we drift away from it, lest we fall away from this greater teaching that's come, this great salvation that's been offered to this greater messenger that is Jesus. But it's more than just the fear of punishment that's driving people to this great salvation. It also talks about how it's been attested to. It's been proven to be good and true by these signs and wonders and miracles. And then the passage shows us one of the greatest of these miracles, that Jesus has come, that God has come through Jesus to be part of this world, to be part of of who we are. And we think back to chapter one of all that we hear about Jesus. Jesus is is, uh, the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He has created all things. He upholds all things. All that we hear about that Jesus, that Jesus, that's the one, he comes and is made low to be with us. And to prove this, you guessed it, we get an Old Testament quotation. Now, I so wish that we had time to look at, at how Psalm 8 is used here. It is fascinating. I love it so much. Uh, the, the idea behind it in Psalm 8, it is talking from the perspective of a person. When we experience who God is, when we see the majesty, the vastness of this God and all that he has created, this world, this universe, the parts that we haven't even discovered yet, and all that God has created, this incredibly vast universe, what do we walk away with other than saying, who am I? It's like when we come across a giant building or a Grand Canyon or this this tremendously huge mountain. We just feel so small in comparison. When we look at the vastness of this universe and we compare it to the five-foot-nine-ness of me, we can only walk away feeling so small and frail and tiny. But what we see in this is that God makes us worthwhile. God calls us valuable because he has made us to be so. Psalm 8 is an incredible passage. This, however, is being applied to Jesus in a really cool way. It's talking about how Jesus takes on that frailty, that smallness that we all have. Jesus takes that status so that he can make us worthwhile, so that he can prove us valuable. I love the way this is used, but I got us lost a little bit last week in how Hebrews uses the the Old Testament. So we'll we'll just skip ahead to a verse that summarizes the thought and and why this author uses it in this way. So look at verse 9. It says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So Jesus existed from, uh, from the beginning. He was a God on high. He was made a little lower than the angels for some time, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the God that we read about in chapter 1. He willingly is made low. He willingly takes on our small stature compared to the vastness of God, compared to the vastness of this universe. He willingly takes that so that he can pay the punishment for death, so that he can suffer, so that he can die, so that he can offer us this great salvation. Here's the sentence that we're working with, what I think chapter 2 is trying to teach us. Jesus is the founder of a great salvation where he descends to us to elevate us. Let me say it one more time. Jesus is the founder of a great salvation where he descends to us to elevate us. And we see this, uh, we'll, we'll focus on that first part, and we've been talking about it already. Jesus descends to us. He becomes like man. He takes on all that is humanity for us. And we see this in uh, verse 10, which I think kind of functions as, as the, the main verse if we were to take one away from this passage. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. So we've been talking about this. Jesus is made low. He goes and suffers. He takes on this status that we are in so that many sons can be brought to glory. He takes on all that is human so that he can do this. Uh, jump down to uh, verse 14. It says, therefore, now since therefore the children, this is humans, share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Jesus, partook of the same things. The same things being flesh and blood, all that makes us human. So that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we saw in verse 10 that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. How is he the founder of our salvation? Well, he first partakes of all that makes us human. He takes on humanity itself, the flesh and blood. He does that so he could be the founder of our salvation. On that word founder, it made me think, I was listening to a podcast this week, last week, I can't remember, it's also not important. But it, it was talking about the myth of the garage in Silicon Valley. And, and the idea is we have all these, these corporations like uh, Hewitt Packard and Microsoft that, that have this story about how there was the founders of their companies just uh, working away all hours of the night in this garage. The idea being that these are, are uh, pioneers. They're working on things that no one has ever seen, that everyone else just kind of gets to build off of the work that they were doing in these places. They were toiling, putting in these hard hours, uh, just, just had a vision and doing this and having to do in such an uh, such a, a undesirable location as a garage, doing this work to start these companies that would eventually shape this world that we now live in. Now, eventually we find out that they actually had received most of their funding at this point, and they had facilities. This was some other place that they were working at. But the myth of the garage is still a, a, a great story. But I think this is what it's talking about when it says Jesus is the founder of our salvation. He has done the hard work. He has gone to those undesirable places. He has done all that uh, we later build upon, that we get to start working with because Jesus has gone before us. He's the pioneer. He's the forerunner. 
Everyone else is following in the footsteps of Jesus of how to know and follow God. He is the founder of our faith, the founder of this great salvation. And Jesus is able to do this because he descends to us. He shows us the way to go because he becomes like us. We are able to know what God is like because Jesus puts it in a way that we can understand with flesh and blood on it. Now, this might be a little bit hard for us to wrap our heads around about how God can be human like this. And I don't just mean the ontology of it. How can something be fully God and fully man? We certainly might have questions about that, but now's not the time. I mean more of like, how can God, the God that we read about, the God that we know, the God who is so unlike us, how can God be so like us? I was listening to a pastor this week, one that I really like, and I very appreciated the way that he put this together. He said, non, non-Christians have difficulty with the deity of Jesus, believing that Jesus is God. Christians have difficulty with the humanity of Jesus. How can God be like us? This perfect, majestic God on high, how can he be like us? Okay, maybe, maybe Jesus just appeared to be human. Maybe he was fully God, he just kind of looked like it. Or maybe, you know, he was human, but whenever he got in a sticky situation, he could flip a God switch and, and he just became something else. He could get out of it. But no, Jesus is fully God. We, we know that to be true. But he took on all that makes us human. He partook of the same things, flesh and blood, to be wholly human as well. There's no compartments there's no switch to hit. Jesus was fully human. It's really important that we get this. Jesus would have needed the first century equivalent of his diapers changed. Stick with me on this. If Jesus ate his food too quickly, he would have gotten hiccups. And if Jesus didn't eat food at all, he would have gotten hungry. Jesus would have felt the, the wonderful sensation of bre- uh, the breeze blowing through his hair. Jesus would have played. He would have laughed. He would have cared and cared deeply. He he would have wept, which we know he did. He felt the entire range of human emotions as a human. Jesus was fragile with breakable bones, sprainable ligaments. He had the ability to get sick. He had the ability to die. Jesus was like us in all the ways that we are human, just without sin. And it might make us uncomfortable to take these to some of the limits of of these mundane things that we do. How can God go through these mundane things that we're used to? But this is what it means when he has taken on all that makes us human. This is God who has come down to be like us in every way. And it's so important that he did. Because what the passage tells us, he became like us. He partook of the same things so that he can put an end to death. So that he might destroy the one who has power over death. And the reverse of that is true as well. If we don't believe Jesus was like us in every way, if we don't believe that he became fully human if we don't believe that he had the same mundane things that we go through as people, then we cannot believe that he died for our sins. 
Jesus needed to be made like us in every way so that he can handle this pain and suffering that we all experience. He became like us. He descended to who we are so that he can put an end to death. Because the flip of that verse is true as well. If Jesus did not do this, then he could not have done the work that he did on the cross for us. But Jesus did do this. Jesus proves his love and care for people by partaking of the same things, by becoming like humans in every single way, by descending to us. Passage tells us something else about this great salvation. Jesus is the founder of a great salvation where he descends to us to elevate us. Look back at uh, verses 10 and 11. It says, uh, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, this is Jesus, and those who are sanctified, this is humans, all have one source. In the context, it's talking about how we're all human. We all partake of flesh and blood, the same things. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then we get this quote from Psalm 22. So, Jesus calls us brothers. Now, I always want to emphasize, this would have also included the the women who were the original recipients of the letter. So Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. And this is really important that we do this in light of what we learned in chapter 1. Remember how I told you to hang on to that son language? Well, in chapter 1, verse uh, 2, we hear that Jesus is called the son, God's son, In verse 5, he's called the son twice. In verse 8, he's called the son again. All throughout chapter 1 is emphasizing that Jesus is the son of God. And now we get to this part right here where that same Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. So Jesus, in doing so, is actually calling us, his brothers and sisters, is calling us the children of God, that God looks at us as well as brothers and sisters in this. Jesus is our brother. Does anyone in here have an older sibling at all? A brother or sister that's older than you? Yeah, and I I have an older sister. Hopefully you have a great relationship with with your older sibling. I know it doesn't always work out that way, but it made me think of uh, back when I was in middle school and uh, would go up to my my sister's room and and in the times that she didn't kick me out immediately, uh, I would just get to go and talk about things whatever was going on. You get to go to this older sibling as, as someone who's gone before you, who has done these things before you. Can I just get your advice? You've, you've seen so much more of the world than me in your two extra years. Uh, so can I get some input, some, some advice to go through? And I would do that with my sisters, just share what's going on, my thoughts, what I'm experiencing. We have here Jesus who calls us brother. Jesus takes on so many roles in our lives. He's a high priest. He's a king. But let's not lose this familiar aspect as well. Jesus is our older brother. He's the founder of our faith. He has gone before us. We are following in his footsteps. He's the firstborn of all creation, so he is older than us. And he calls us brothers and sisters. The God of the universe is made low to call us brothers and sisters, making us a child of God. We use that phrase so often, and I think sometimes we get struck by the importance of it appropriately, but I I hope 
if we haven't been, that this is an opportunity for us. God calls us his children. The God who has created this universe. The God who sustains it. The God who wants to be known. The God who has perfect love. He calls us children brought into the family by the Son. Jesus calls us brothers and sisters, raising us to a status that we could have never attained on our own. And the reason why Jesus can do this is because he has paid the price. He has paid the penalty for our sins, our wrongdoings. He has taken the death that should have been ours. Look at verses 14 through 18. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil. Deliver all those through who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself uh, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we see in this uh, a lot of language of what Jesus has done to pay the price for us. He puts uh, the, the, he puts, he takes the penalty of death. He suffers. He puts the end, the one who has power over death. He's a propitiation. This means he diverts the wrath that we have all earned. He diverts the wrath of God from us elsewhere onto himself. We see Jesus taking all of this price and punishment onto himself. And I think we get to a moment when we realize something. I think we get to a place, all of us, where we see that things have gone wrong, that this is not how it's supposed to be. I mean, just look in this world that we are living in. We, we barely have time to, to get done talking about Hurricane Ida before we have to start learning about Hurricane Larry. We have this, uh, the 20th anniversary of a shaping moment in all of our lives, but now we're adding to it new pictures of planes packed to the brim of humans fleeing a country that they know and love for their lives. We have this smoke that we're breathing in, and it's awful, and, it, and it's damaging to us, but with it comes a reminder that over the Rockies, all we're seeing is a sign, because there is death and destruction, and loss. It does not take much to see that this world has something wrong with it. Then we get to the points in our lives as well. We think back to the weeks where we've just been at our end, where we've yelled at people and we're not sure why, even in the moment, where we're doing something and we know it's, it's wrong, we know it's damaging to us, and yet we're doing it again and again where we realize that we are not being the people that we want to be. And this phrase, there's something wrong with this world, it doesn't just become about the world out there, but there's something wrong with us. But we say, we'll fix it, we'll, we'll make it right. But like all New Year's resolutions, in a few weeks, we are right back to where we started. Only this time we get to add more shame and more disappointment and more of feeling like we're not enough. It's great, right? Let alone when we come before a perfect 
and holy God, the God who has made us, the God who wants to be known, the God who has loved us perfectly, who has pursued humanity from the very first time that we went against God, and we certainly have added more times than we have gone against God since then. We come before that vast, perfect God. What else can we say but what we see in Psalm 8? Who am I? What is man? I'm but a tiny thing. And I'm constantly going against you, constantly trying to do what I think is best for my life and, and failing miserably every time. All I deserve is to be trodden on by you, God. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. There is nothing valuable in me. But that isn't it. We are meant to be son, called sons, to be called brothers and sisters by the Son who has come, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of it all, the exact imprint of God's nature, seated on the right hand of God, comes down, is made low for us, for you. And he goes and he takes this punishment. He suffers. He dies the death that should have been ours. He goes to the cross a place of death and destruction, and yet the only thing that dies on the cross is death itself, offering hope and life and peace to all those who turn to him. And it's all been paid for there. This salvation, this great salvation that Jesus is the founder of, it's offered freely to all. There's no waiver to sign. There's no pilgrimage you must take to go and receive this. It has all been done, and it was all done on the cross. This Jesus who was on high is made low so that he can elevate us, and that is a great salvation. And because Jesus goes and does this, because he makes himself low, because he partakes of the same thing, because he is like us in every way but sin, because he goes and suffers and is punished and is tempted and tested, he can relate to us. He can know what it's like. This isn't just assumptions. This isn't taking things to a logical conclusion. Ah, Emily, I know you're a great teacher. This is getting to experience it, all of it every little bit. You ever have those conversations with someone where you're hearing them talking and, and it feels like they're just actually reading your life back to you? There's so much overlap between what they're going through, what they're experiencing, and that it feels just like what you're going through. Ah, they must get it. Where it feels so good to know that you're not alone. Where it feels so good to know that there's someone else who's going through something similar. Where, where now you can share. It makes you want to share back of how you've been going through it. Now you found a, a kin, someone who's going through the same thing. It, it gives hope that there, there's a possibility of getting through this, that you might make it. You might be able to get through this thing if you just stick together. Oh, you know what? I, I've, I've experienced the same thing. That is what we have in Jesus. We have someone who's tempted and tested in every way that we are, and yet was victorious. We have someone who, who suffered in the same ways that we will suffer and yet has made it through it. And so what we find in Jesus is someone who can relate to us beyond what anyone else can. It makes us want to share. It makes us want to cling to this person so that we can make do it because in him we have found a kin, a brother who has done all of this. 
But we've said before, we miss out on all of this if we deny the humanity of Jesus. If we make him as just something otherworldly, we don't see how low he has made himself to be like us. But we also miss out on all the love that Jesus shows us by coming to this world. Jesus is God on high, made low for you. Jesus has made all things, but he makes us children of God. Jesus, who is is God's son, comes to this earth so that we can be called sons and daughters. Jesus, who is on a throne and it's eternal, comes instead to be on a cross for us. And because of that, he can relate. Because of that, he can know us. Because of that, he can show his love. And in so doing, shows in each and every one of us who follow and believe in this freely given great salvation that he thinks that you were worth that. And I think we see this in our text. Because when we get to that passage that's quoted uh, where it talks about how Jesus calls us brothers and, and sisters, uh, the quote comes to us from Psalm uh, 22, verse 22. It was easy to remember that one. I was grateful for that. But in all this discussion of what Jesus has done, the price he has paid, he defeated death, he suffered, he was made low. And all of this conversation, it might make us think, and I think it's intentionally designed to make us think, where else do we see Psalm 22? Let me clarify that. Where do we see Psalm 22 in relation to Jesus? Let me make this abundantly clear. Where do we see Jesus quote Psalm 22 verse 1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross. The place where he experienced loneliness and pain and hardship for the many sons being brought to glory. The place where he paid the penalty. He took the death that he had not earned, but he did it freely and willingly for us the place where he goes from his throne on high to be tortured and killed so that we can be elevated to the place of honor and love that he says that we deserve. On the cross is where we see Jesus offer such a great salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful to be called your children. And we are able to because you have come to this earth. You have been made low. You have taken this frail and fragile existence that we have. And you have done so willingly so that you can rescue us, so that you can elevate us, so that you can call us sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of Jesus. As we look at the cross, we are so struck by how undeservedly you have come, but how grateful we are that you have. That you have done the work that we could not. You have paid the penalty for us falling away from you. How much greater is the salvation that's come to us by this Jesus who has died, through this Jesus who is raised, by this Jesus who is greater.